Good evening. In the back of the room are copies of the 1985 Rare Book School brochure, which has not yet gone out to the friends, I regret to say, because I still have a hole left that I'm having trouble plugging in the spring schedule of Book Arts Press Lectures, and so I haven't been able to get together the little booklet, which I shall be doing this week, for, for sure. You should have that booklet in your hands in a week or so. The next lecture of the Friends of the Book Arts Press will be on Monday, the 11th of February, and the speaker is John Dreyfus on Beatrice Ward. And the next lecture after that will be on the 18th of February, and that will be the antiquarian bookseller and manuscripts dealer Kenneth Rendell talking about ethical and other considerations for the profession of manuscript person, whether librarian or bookseller, of the Hitler diaries. He was the one, remember, who helped to blow the whistle on the most recent adventure and fraud most spectacular recent adventure in fraud in our profession. Our speaker this evening is Michael Winship, the editor of the bibliography, the editor of Bibliography of American Literature. Uh, neither he nor it needs any introduction to this audience. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here this evening. Well, thank you all for coming. I'm sort of a reluctant speaker because once you've become associated to a project as much as I have, you wonder whether you really should talk about it anymore. I mean, it, it's gotten to the point where a friend of mine who's a bookseller in New York introduces me as Mr. B.A.L. <laughs> Yale University Press has their computer send mail to me as Jacob Blank Jr. <laughs> I don't understand. Anyway, so I thought today I wouldn't really talk about myself, but I'd talk about the project, and I'm just a small coda at the end of this. So, tucked into the January 1820 issue of the Edinburgh Review, following a review of Walter Scott's newly published novel Ivanhoe, is an article on a book published in Philadelphia by Thomas Dobson and Son in 1818. The book is Adam Sabert's Statistical Annals of the United States, and the review begins as follows. This is a book of character and authority, but it is a very large book, and therefore we think we, should do, we shall do an acceptable service to our readers by presenting them with a short epitome of its contents. Indeed, it is a large book, and the review likewise goes on a bit. Both would now be forgotten and of interest only to the most dedicated antiquarian or perhaps to historians of the book if the reviewer had not decided to finish off with some general remarks about American culture. He concludes, Such is the land of Jonathan, and thus it has been governed, in his honest endeavors to better his situation, and in his manly purpose of resisting injury and insult we most cordially sympathize. Thus far we are the friends and admirers of Jonathan, but he must not grow vain and ambitious or allow himself to be dazzled by that galaxy of epithets by which his orators and newspaper scribblers endeavor to persuade their supporters that they are the greatest, the most refined, the most enlightened, the most moral people upon the earth. The effect of this is unspeakably ludicrous on this side of the Atlantic, and even on the other, we should imagine, must be rather humiliating to the reasonable part of the population. The Americans are a brave, industrious, and acute people 
but they have hitherto given no indications of genius and made no approaches to the heroic, either in their morality or character. They are but a recent offset indeed from England and should make it their chief boast for many generations to come that they are sprung from the same race with Bacon, Shakespeare, and Newton. And finally, he asks, and you will have heard this, in the four quarters of the globe, who reads an American book or goes to an American play or looks at an American picture or statue? When these questions are fairly and favorably answered, their laudatory epithets may be allowed, but till that can be done, we would seriously advise them to keep clear of superlatives. <laughs> who reads an American book? Who indeed? With this question, the reviewer, the literateur and wit, Reverend Sidney Smith, managed to prick the self-esteem of a new nation busily engaged in establishing a national identity. We know, of course, that people did read American books. The political ideology represented by the Federalist Papers had already had an important impact in Europe. American writers such as Washington Irving and James Feminor Cooper were just establishing their popularity there. And the next generation of American writers, which included the philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson and the historian William Hickling Prescott, would show that they were capable of serious literary work. Until, finally, Harriet Beecher Stowe, with her best-selling bit of propaganda, Uncle Tom's Cabin, would prove that the whole world was reading an American book. But still, in 1818, the question stung, and for years to come, American writers felt as though they had something to prove. They published a series of books to show off the best of American talent, heavy and overly decorated gift books and anthologies with titles such as Specimens of American Verse, Gems from the American Female Poets, The Prose Writers of America, compiled by the likes of Samuel G. Goodrich, Samuel Cattell, Rufus Wilmot Griswold, and the Dykink Brothers, and, I should add parenthetically, if we were to take this group of publications, the coffee table books of their day, and read through them, we should in general concede the Reverend Smith his point. With some very few exceptions, the gilt bindings and inserted steel engravings do very little to distract from the dreariness of the contents. But no matter, the point I'm trying to make should be clear. When we discuss the bibliography, with a lowercase b, of American literature, we should from the very start admit that the impulse for making such a bibliography is in part a chauvinistic one. As a nation, we have something to prove, and the efforts to collect and record our literature are meant to make a point, to establish and to validate our national accomplishments. Although our earliest collectors and bibliographers focused their efforts on historical methods, materials, those books that served to chronicle the American experiment, they soon turned their attention to the task of creating the record of American literary work. For bibliographers of American literature, 1885, 100 years ago, was a banner year. That year saw the publication of two slim volumes, both pioneer efforts of their kind. The first is a pamphlet by Beverly Chu, published by the New York bookseller William Everett Benjamin, providing a checklist of the first editions in book form of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It is the first separate bibliography of an American literary writer. But it is the second which particularly interests me today, for it is the true precursor of my work. This is the catalog of first editions of American authors, compiled, arranged, and for sale by Leon and Brother of New York. 
although only 58 pages in length, provides an excellent pioneer guide to the writings of American literature. As the title suggests, this pamphlet is in fact a bookseller's catalog. The firm of Leon and Brothers remains obscure. In 1885, when they published this catalog, their shop was located at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street, under the Fifth Avenue Hotel. Madeline Stern, who has investigated the firm's history, has discovered that the principal of the firm was one Francis G. Leon, a Polish nobleman who emigrated to America in about 1880. His brother, Adam G. Leon, had arrived in New York two years earlier in 1878 and established a cigar shop on Washington Square East. It was here that Francis first established the book business. He moved to Fifth Avenue on the 1st of January, 1884. An auction in June of 1886 indicates that Francis was selling off stock and in the American catalog of 1891, the firm is listed as out of business. The name Leon may well have been assumed and the brother's common initial G conceal their true surname. If it were not for the catalog of American first editions, the brother's brief foray into the bookselling world would probably never have been noticed. The catalog was first advertised in Publishers Weekly on November 8th of 1884 and published, patriotically enough, on the 4th of July, 1885. The cost was $1. Surviving copies suggest that it was not only issued in a trade edition, but also in a large paper printing, as well as bound up interleaved so that purchasers could add their own notes or perhaps check their collections. A wide range of American authors are represented, including, according to the title, poets, philosophers, historians, statesmen, essayists, dramatists, novelists, travelers, humorists, etc., etc., etc. I don't know who was left out. The authors are arranged alphabetically, and their works are then listed chronologically. In a brief introductory note, the firm explains its methodology. The works are all first American editions, or such revised editions as, from important additional matter first published in them, deserve a place in the list. Such revised editions are always invariably noted. The books are perfect, and if not in their original or well-preserved binding, are encased in cloth or boards. The star prefixed to the name of an author indicates that the list is believed to comprise all his works published in separate form. Great care has been taken to ascertain the correct date of every first edition in a separate form. But as it is the first attempt to compile such a catalog, some few mistakes may have occurred caused by the contradictions of bibliographical works, the forgetfulness of authors themselves, and the practice of publishers of post-dating their books. Correction of any error will be thankfully received, and the book not correctly described may be returned to us at our own expense. All in all is a wonderful work, and I think very sort of familiar in its outline. It's one that establishes the pattern for subsequent efforts of compiling a comprehensive bibliography of the first editions of American authors. Clearly, the compilers have recognized the originality of the catalog, and in a brief and eloquent preface, they put forth the nationalistic impulse behind the catalog, and they also make clear the case for the importance of first editions. And I quote, A hopeful sign of future book collecting is exhibited in the fact that the bibliophiles of America are emulating their brethren in the old world in placing upon their shelves first editions. The Ediciones Principes 
sought by wise and patriotic collectors are neither Gutenbergs, Caxtons, Aldus, nor Bodonis. Amateurs are winning, winnowing from the ripe harvest of books early specimens of those authors in whom this nation takes pride. As the English collector hunts for Shakespeare, Milton, Thackeray, or Shelley, the French for Ronsard, Villon, Montaigne, Mousset, and Hugo, so the prudent American delves into the stores and catalogs for copies of Mather, Franklin, Irving, Poe, Prescott, Longfellow, Lowell, Aldrich, and the rest of the guild of our more famous writers. Here's the beginning of an answer to Sidney Smith. Blurred in type and printed on indifferent paper, as some of them are, these first examples of the writing of our great authors are today, in many cases, worth their weight in gold. Not only are they of increasing value day by day, but they are of the highest bibliographical and literary interest. In the first editions, the text appears fresh from the author's mind before those changes which are apt to occur, either from reflection or as the result of unfavorable criticism. Moreover, they often contain passages or poems which are omitted from later editions. It will thus be seen that by collecting the first editions of an author, we have the benefit of a pure and unchanged text. Poor and unassuming, as some of these editions appear to us now, they have a distinct personality which is entirely wanting in the most sumptuous modern editions. Well, it should be clear that this was intended to be a reference work as well as a simple bookseller's catalog, but it is still interesting to see what treasures would have been available to us had we been building our collections of American literature in 1885. The first edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, which happened to have been published on the 4th of July 30 years earlier in 1855, is listed at only $15. Mark Twain's celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County of 1867 is only a dollar and a quarter. Henry Thoreau's Week on the Concord and Merrimack, 1849, is $6, while Walden, 1854, is a great bargain at $4 and a quarter. The rarity of some items is confirmed here. Both Poe's Tamerlane, 1827, and Hawthorne's Fanshawe, 1828, legendary rarities today, are listed, but without price, which suggests that they were not available and only listed for the sake of completeness. Surprisingly, Melville's Moby Dick, 1851, is not listed at all, but the four books of his that are included could all be purchased for the grandson of only $6. Such, of course, is the stuff of dreams. As I have said, this is a wonderful work, and I must admit that occasionally when I'm bogged down with the details and, may I say it, drudgery of my present work, I wonder whether it would not have sufficed. But no. <laughs> <laughs> the eagerness of the collectors and recorders of our national literature soon brought forth a second attempt at a com comprehensive guide. This was called First Editions of American Authors, a manual for book lovers compiled by Herbert Stuart Stone. It was published in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1893 and is the first book publication of the influential firm of Stone and Kimball, later of Chicago. It had been printed by John Wilson and Son at the University Press in Cambridge in May of 1893. The edition consisted of 450 copies of a trade printing sold for a dollar and a quarter and 50 large paper copies. The story of its compilation is best told by an inscription by Ingalls Kimball, 
of Kimball's, Stone and Kimball's, in a copy he presented later to the Grolier Club. He wrote, The book was written, insofar as it may be said to have been written at all, mainly from the title pages of the first editions themselves at the college library when Herbert Stone and I were at Harvard. The lists were prepared, there prepared, were typewritten in my bedroom and sent to the authors or their heirs for correction. The proofs in galley also were sent to these people. The book came out in the spring of our junior year, the suggestion for making it having come from Eugene Field at Christmas time when Herbert was in Chicago. Superficially, the arrangement and contents of this book are similar to Leon and Brothers' catalog, but the feel is entirely different. It's not a bookseller's catalog. It's a handsome book. It's aimed at bibliophiles. The difference is most apparent, however, in the rather verbose introduction by Eugene Field on the joys of book collecting, which ends with a long dialogue between Plato and Ximenes the Cretan, where the former explains to the latter the joys of first editions. I'll just quote briefly from it. <laughs> it's very hard to read. I, tis my philosophy to love all books, but tis my practice to search out and comprehend and have and hold unto my special love and delectation the virgin book that is come fresh and unrevised from the author of its being. For, such, for the first edition, like the maiden, giveth unto its possessor such sweet virginal delectation as maketh it sacred in the opinion of all that be righteously and gently minded. <laughs> well, as I, what could you expect from a writer who coined the term biblio bliss? <laughs> Fortunately, Stone's bibliography was soon eclipsed by another work, Foley's American Authors, 1795 to 1895. The author and compiler, Patrick Kevin Foley, was born in Ireland in 1856. I think it's interesting that there are these early bibliographers of American literature are often foreigners and have pe people that have emigrated to America, and perhaps that's why they felt so interested in our American literature. He had emigrated to the United States fully in 1881 and set himself up as a bookseller in Boston in 1896. Specializing in American books, especially literature, he established himself as one of the major dealers and experts in the field. This position was, of course, in part established by this bibliography, which remained the major reference tool of its type until 1929, more than 30 years, and is still of great use today. The book was published in Boston in 1897, at the beginning of his career as a bookseller. Published for subscribers only, it was available in a large paper printing for $10 and a regular or small paper printing for 5 according to the listing in Publishers Weekly on the 15th of May, 1897. Foley's notes and papers, some of which survive at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, show that it was not an immediate bestseller. Rather, it sold slowly and steadily during his career. Many of the later copies that he sold, including my own, have been carefully corrected and amended throughout in Foley's neat hand. The notes and manuscript notes at AAS also suggest how the work was compiled. Author lists were put together based on earlier catalogs and lists and other sources and then sent to the authors or their heirs for comment and correction. The replies from these authors, which do survive, make fascinating reading today. 
we see the authors surprised to see an early peace that they had forgotten about unearthed. We see authors attempting to deny responsibility for other early works, which they regret having published. <laughs> but all in all, Foley's work does not really improve on its predecessors. The entries are still brief, with a title on a line, and the scope is familiar. First, an important other editions of American writers with an emphasis on literary authors. The chief merits of this book were that it was accurate, it was comprehensive, and for its day, up to date. And of course, Foley, being a bookseller, often could supply the copies that he described. The next attempt at a guide to the writings of American literary authors was different from its predecessors in an important way. It was a collaborative work incorporating the knowledge and expertise of many contributors. The scheme grew out of a chance meeting in the early 1920s between Frederick M. Hopkins, who was writing a column on the rare book trade for Publishers Weekly, and Merle DeVore Johnson, a cartoonist and illustrator who dabbled in bookselling and the bibliography of American authors. These men recognized that Foley needed to be revised in order to incorporate new bibliographical discoveries and to include new authors which had become popular with readers and collectors. Each author list they schemed would be compiled by a bookseller, collector, or other expert and would be published in Publishers Weekly as part of a regular series. The very first list, which was compiled by Henry C. Quimby and treats the works of the Indiana author Booth Tarkington, appeared in the issue of September 9, 1922. Others followed with some frequency. Already on the 2nd of February, 1924, the editors of Publishers Weekly announced their intention to publish a collection of these lists as a separate volume. But in a note published in June 27, 1925, they recognized that separate publication would need to be put off until the number of authors covered by the list would be, could be expanded to give the volume a broader scope and to make it more comprehensive. Merle Johnson's American First Editions, containing the list for 105 authors, was finally published about the 1st of April, 1929, a handsome volume produced by Dan Daniel Berkeley Updike at the Marymount Press in Boston. It cost $12.50 and was listed in Publishers Weekly on the 13th of April of 1929. The need it filled as a guide can best be suggested by stating that just a week later, Publishers Weekly announced that it was entirely out of print. It had also been found to be incomplete and inaccurate, and almost immediately a small folder containing addenda and corrigenda was printed and distributed. This too proved to be inadequate, and a revised edition or revised editions were published in 1932, 1936, and 1942. And now, finally, we have arrived at the heart of my talk. For the man who is responsible for these revised editions was Jacob Blank, who is also the prime architect and builder of Bibliography of American Literature, or BAL. I trust, however, that you will forgive me this long prologue, for I believe, and I hope you'll agree, that BAL can best be understood and appreciated by understanding the traditions and assumptions that lie behind it and placing it in that context. Jacob Nathaniel Blank was born in Boston on November 10, 1906. He was one of eight children of immigrant parents, Selig Blank, a tailor from London, and Mildred R. Friedman Blank. 
He attended Boston Public Schools, and upon completing high school, worked for a brief stint as a clerk in a clothing shop. Early in 1929, just before the Depression, he opened the Galleon Bookshop at 3 Irvington Street in Boston's Back Bay. It was here that he was discovered by I.R. Brussel, or Ike Brussel, who sometimes signed himself as L.O.G.S., or Last of the Great Scouts. And in this case, at least, he did scout out a great bookman in the making. When Blank's Boston bookshop failed in December 1929, just after the Depression came on, or Wall Street crashed, Blank moved to New York. Here, Ike Brussel took him around to Merle Johnson's studio and ordered Johnson to hire young Blank at $25 a week. Blank soon proved himself useful to Johnson, running errands, scouting, and cataloging books for sale. But he was set specifically to work on the revised second edition of Merle Johnson's American First Editions, which came out in 1932. When Johnson died in 1935, Blank again found himself at loose ends and unemployed at the height of the Depression. His first task was to see the second edition of Johnson's bibliography of Samuel Clemens through to publication, a task he quickly performed before the book could get tied up in the complications involved in settling Johnson's estate. After this, Blank found himself with a desk, but no job, at G.A. Baker and Company, where the proprietor, Max Hartsoff, had brought together such bright young bookmen as David Randall and Edward Lazar. Next, Blank was hired by Frederick G. Melcher to work for Publishers Weekly and R.R. Bowker Company. For the former, he wrote a regular column on the antiquarian book trade, a continuation of Hopkins's, which I mentioned earlier. His first article appeared on October 17, 1936, and it continued into the 1950s, but is part of Saul Malkin's Antiquarian Bookman after 1947. For R.R. Bowker Company, he compiled or contributed to a series of price guides, auction records, and bibliographies. Of special note are the third edition of Merle Johnson's American First Editions, which appeared in 1936, and his own Peter Parley to Penrod of 1938, a pioneering descriptive bibliography of the best-loved American juvenile books. These depression years in New York may have been hard ones for Blank, but they were important for providing him with irreplaceable bibliographical experience and a firm understanding of the world of antiquarian books. The second great contributor to BAL was the book collector and philanthropist Josiah Kirby Lilly, Jr. of Indianapolis, Indiana. Lilly had given in 1937 an anonymous grant of $6,000 per annum, which was to continue for five years to the Library of Congress in support of bibliographical research relating to American writers. This grant was administered by the chief of, rare, of the Rare Books Division, a man by the name of Vivalta Parma, but who had formerly been known as Albert Houghton Pratt. It's one of the many curious things about Parma. At the suggestion of Lilly, the first work to be supported by this grant was to be a, the preparation of a bibliography of the first editions of American juvenile writers. Parma hired a man named Gustav Davidson, who was a writer but not a trained bibliographer, to work on the project. When the threat of scandal forced Parma to resign from the Library of Congress job in 1939, it was discovered that the Lilly funds had been mismanaged and that no publishable research nor manuscript had been produced. 
the late Archibald McLeish, who had just been named Librarian of Congress, canvassed several prominent bookmen for a candidate to fill the position supported by the Lilly Grant, and Jacob Blank was named to the post. Blank worked at the Library of Congress from April 1, 1940 through 1942, during which time he prepared and published a bibliography entitled Harry Castleman, Boy's Own Author, and compiled voluminous notes for a large-scale bibliography of the first editions of American juvenile authors, which was never completed nor published. But it was sort of a dry run for BAL, and when you look at the notes he made there, you can see many of the ideas being worked out. He also edited and saw through to publication during these years the fourth edition of Merle Johnson's American First Editions, published in 1942. Blank not only gained in bibliographic experience during his tenure at Library of Congress, but also established a working relationship with Lilly, which was to last until the death of the latter in 1967. Blank spent 1943 in Indianapolis working on another project sponsored by Lilly, a bibliography of James Whitcomb Riley, which had le been left incomplete by Anthony J. Russo at his death in 1940 and was being completed by his widow, Dorothy R. Russo. During this day in Indianapolis, Lilly and Blank discussed future bibliographic projects and finally decided to go ahead with Blank's dream, a comprehensive bibliography of the first editions of American literary authors. In the early fall of 1943, Lilly approached the Bibliographical Society of America and inquired whether they would be willing to act as a sponsor for the project. After careful consideration, the Council of the Society voted on the November 29, 1943 to accept this responsibility and named a supervisory committee of first-ranked bookmen to oversee the project. The original members of the committee were Carol A. Wilson, noted collector of American liter literature, who was chairman, James T. Babb of Yale, Clarence S. Brigham of the American Antiquarian Society, William A. Jackson of Harvard, and David A. Ramdell of Scribner's Bookshop. BAL officially began operations on January 1, 1944, with Jacob Blank acting as research director and with offices at R.R. Bowker Company, 62 West 45th Street, New York, New York. The first order of business was to decide on the scope of the project and to establish the style of entry within each author list. Working closely with a supervisory committee, Blank considered more than 1,200 authors before publishing a prospectus and a tentative author list of 270 names in Library Journal, June 15, 1944. With this list was an appeal for recommendations for additions or deletions. An off-print of the list was sent to all members of the Bibliographical Society and to other experts of the f in the fields of bibliography and American literature. The result of this appeal was a final list of 281 names. Blank also prepared sample bibliographical entries under the, under the direction of the committee, which were also circulated, both privately and in published form. The result was a formal Manual of Style and Procedure, prepared in February 1948. Meanwhile, Blank had hired two assistants, Jeffrey Gum and Louis Barron, to begin work of compiling the bibliography. The first task was to compile a skeleton checklist for each author to be included, based on already existing bibliographies and reference works. 
This checklist was made up of three by five cards with one title per card and took approximately one year to complete. Over the next several years, Blank's assistants then read through 50 American, British and Am American and British literary book trade periodicals of the 19th and 20th centuries, carefully noting all publication notices, advertisements, and reviews for each title in the checklist. The Copyright Office of the Library of Congress provided copyright deposit information, which was added to the cards. Blank himself began examining the holdings of the New York Public Library and created a working manuscript typed onto eight and a half by 11 sheets containing full transcriptions and collations for the titles in the checklist. As each title was described in the working manuscript, the information on the corresponding card in the checklist was transferred to the working manuscript and the card was discarded. By 1950, the staff had completed their work in the New York Public Library and had also examined and described books in several other nearby libraries, including those of Yale University. In 1950, Blank and his new assistant, Earl Coleman, moved to Boston and set up headquarters in the Houghton Library at Harvard University, where the project has been based ever since. Blank worked his way through the major New England collections during the next two years, Harvard University, Brown University, the American Antiquarian Society, Boston Public Library, and the Boston Athenaeum. By 1952, the work on the project had resulted in the compilation of an immense amount of raw data, and the final editorial process could begin. During this final editorial work on each volume, a check was made in major libraries of the East Coast, including the Library of Congress and the libraries at the University of Virginia, and also in important private collections. All this information was carefully considered before the finals printer's copy was prepared and sent to the publisher, which was Yale University Press. The first volume was published in November 1955, and the next volumes came out regularly. Volume 2 in December of 1957, Volume 3 in October 1959, Volume 4 in June of 1963, Volume 5, which was delayed due to sabotage resulting from labor disagreements with the compositors in March of 1969, and Volume 6 in December of 1973. I would like to break off this historical account now to describe briefly the scope and style of BAL. This description is based on Jake Blank's preface to Volume 1, which is a careful and thorough statement of the guidelines applied in BAL, and which I strongly recommend that anyone using BAL or interested in 19th century American books read in its entirety. BAL includes 201, 281 American authors, chosen from those who lived during the federal period to those who died before the end of 1930. Included are authors who were considered significant in American, but not necessarily world literature. Current popularity was not a factor in deciding whether or not to include an author, that means 20th century popularity, but rather if, in their own time at least, if they were known and read. The emphasis is on writers of literature. Historians and writers of travel books are included only if their works have literary interest. Persons who were primarily authors of juvenile literature, scientific or medical books, textbooks, sermons, or political speeches are not included. And I did hand out a list of um, the authors that are included if you want to look for your favorite. Each author in BAL is given a separate list. 
author lists are arranged alphabetically. The main section in each author list describes the first publication of all of the author's writings in book form. Book form is understood rather loosely to include books, pamphlets, as well as broadsides, leaflets, and sheet music. However, journal and periodical appearances, unrevised reprints of books, and translations into other languages are left for future bibliographers. Within the list, the entries are arranged chronologically by actual date of publication. Now, I don't know how many of you um, are familiar with BAL, so I also handed out a sample page from volume seven. And I thought I'd just quickly go down and show sort of the elements of an entry without... Uh, the main section of each author list includes two styles of entry. Primary entries, for example, 16153 Edgar Allan Poe's Eureka are given for books written either wholly or in substantial part by the author, and they include the following elements. A transcription of the title page, both the title and imprint, in a simplified form. Paginary collation, showing the number of pages, the type of paper, if it's, or mentioning if it's laid paper. Size of the leaf, presence of inserted or unnumbered plates. Next comes the signature collation, which gives the folding of the sheets and the way that they were signed, presented in a bibliographical formula. Um, binding description, which gives the type of covering material, cloth or paper, color or its color and grain, the type of end papers, presence of fly leaves, paper labels, gilt edges, and inserted errata notices or advertisements. Following this is publication information, things such as copyright deposit dates, contemporary book trade journal listings, advertisements and notices, dated inscriptions, and information from publishers' records when they are available. Finally, we have locations of the copies examined. In additions, descriptions of variant printings, issues, states of the first edition, or of variant publishers' bindings are given. Secondary entries treat books containing the first appearance of an individual piece by an author. And for example, we have at the bottom of the right-hand column the Spanish Galleon, which has the first appearance of Xing a paragraph. Um, these entries include the f um, a transcription of the title page, description of the binding if it's other than cloth, publication information, and the title and page numbers of the author's contribution and location of copies examined. Besides the main section in each author list, all authors have a section that identifies reprinted contributions in anthologies and a section of references and ANA including the principal bibliographies, biographies, and critical works consulted by the BAL staff. Most author lists also have a section of reprints of the author's own books, which might be mistaken for first printings. Further sections are included when necessary. In the Longfellow list in volume five, for example, there are separate sections for sheet music and for undated reprints. Entries in these sections are briefer than those in the main section. When we look at the BAL, we can see the influence of the earlier guides to American literature. The basic arrangement, scope, and emphasis on first editions, or those containing major revisions, are all familiar. 
but it is also important to recognize how much in BAL is new. In establishing guidelines for BAL, Blank and the Bibliographical Society Supervisory Committee attempted to follow what were, at that time, the most modern standards and principles. It is interesting to consider how BAL reflects these, as well as the bibliographical experience that Blank had gained in New York and in Washington. Remember that Bowers had not yet prepared his influential principles of bibliographical description, and that the techniques that had been developed to work with early printed books were generally considered to be inapplicable and superfluous for 19th century mass-produced books. This is a prejudice which seems to even survive today in some quarters, I'm afraid to say. BAL includes much more than its predecessors, both in number and range of material listed, and also in amount of information given. For example, the importance of The importance of contributions to anthologies, broadsides, and other ephemeral productions had been shown in a number of author bibliographies, such as Thomas Franklin Currier's of Jean John Greenleaf Whittier, as well as by Merle Johnson and Carol A. Wilson, and other collectors' pursuit of the first book appearance of famous sayings and pieces. Merle Johnson had published a wonderful book called You Know These Lines, which was a catalog of the first appearance of famous sayings. And it's interesting to look at it today because they're at how many of those lines you don't know. I think that we've really changed in our appreciation. Cal Wilson collected sort of first appearances of famous sayings and did a very large and interesting uh, exhibit at them at Wesleyan College in 1935. Other people were collecting this type of thing. Thus, the BAL staff searched through hundreds and hundreds of anthologies, almanacs, and other ephemera, recording fugitive appearances of an author's writing and searching out its first publication. William Jackson, bibliographer of early English printing, recognized and insisted on the importance of full collation by signature in order to grasp the basic structure of a book. The examination of multiple copies was called for, and the signature collation soon revealed the presence of many previously unrecognized printings, both major and minor books. The technique developed by Merle Johnson of using plate batter became an important tool for ordering different printings once they had been discovered. BAL established a system for describing 19th century publishers' bindings and provided a photographic key to the grains of binder's clause. This was an effort which, together with the work of John Carter and Michael Sadler in England, has helped establish the significance of these 19th century publishers' bindings. Ike Brussel, with two publications, Anglo-American First Editions East to West, published in 1935, and West to East, published in 1936, had shown that the doctrine of follow the flag was inadequate. This was a practice that preferred the first American edition of of an American author and the first English edition of an English author, and this following the flag. BAL recognizes the importance of English editions of American authors and describes them in full when they precede the American edition. In order to achieve this, the date of publication had to be established as precisely as possible, requiring a search of contemporary periodicals for advertisements, listings, and reviews. Publishers' records and file copies were consulted if available. V. Valta Parma had discovered the importance of copyright records in the 
and the copyright deposit copies at the Library of Congress in his work on building their collection of American juvenile books. And this information was included in BAL. Finally, the location of copies examined was given, thus providing the chance for verification of any statement in BAL. I say that so glibly, and yet I, I know at least at the library where I work, every year the copies that we have examined and have located in BAL are going under the axe as the conservators turn them into film and other things. It's a great problem, but at least we try to locate copies in institutions when we can. All of these features combine to make BAL a much more useful and much more complete than any of its predecessors. I suppose I should mention briefly another new feature of BAL, the attempt to provide careful and reasonable guidelines for deciding the list of authors to be included. I've already explained briefly how the selection was accomplished, and it, but it should be clear in the end that the decision was surprised how small these groups are. And I'm continuing, um, I'm surprised how small these groups are, and in fact, at how well the list has withstood 40 years of change in literary taste. For those of you who find your favorite author missing from BAL, I hope you will spend your energy working on amending the omission, make a bibliography, and not harping at our original committee for an unintended oversight. Because his health was failing in the 1970s, Blank called in 1972 on a former assistant, Earl Coleman, to help complete the final two volumes of BAL. Coleman agreed, and during a two-year leave of absence from his job at the Princeton University Archives, did much of the research and checking needed to complete the working manuscript in libraries outside of the Boston area. After Coleman returned to Princeton in June of 1974, Blank had began the task of reviewing the notes in the working manuscript for the seventh volume. He continued this work until his death on the 23rd of December, 1974. The project was then continued for seven months by Blank's final assistant, Catherine S. Jarvis. In August of 1975, Jarvis was succeeded by Virginia L. Myers, who continued with the project through March of 1982. I joined her in February of 1976, at first as a part-time bibliographical research assistant, but as co-editor beginning in June of 1977. Blank had made no provision for a successor, and several years were required to recover the details and learn to understand his notes and method of work. Further travel to major research collections proved to be necessary. We also had to secure the financial future of the project and in 1978, the National Endowment for the Humanities took over the major burden of funding BAL, though the Lilly Endowment continues to support the project. Finally, in April of 1980, the finished manuscript was delivered to Yale University Press for Volume 7. And after laborious proofing, Jenny and I read the entire volume out loud to each other two full times, it was published in March of 1983. Work continues now on Volume 8, and publication is projected for 1897, 1987. <laughs> I, should close, I should have closed down the office in the middle of 1986. Although neither Jacob Blank nor J.K. Lilly Jr. lived to see the completion of the project, the goal is in sight. 
Once completed, BAL will be a monument to the careful work of Jacob Blank, the generous support of J.K. Lilly, and the vision of them both. But this has been a talk about bibliography and American literature. BAL is not the bibliography of American literature, but more accurately, a contribution to bibliography of American literature. The work of recording the output of our literary authors and investigating the history of its production and reception continues. Our generation of bibliographers have new approaches, new techniques, and new interests which are being reflected in the work that is now being produced. Already several volumes in the Pittsburgh series of bibliography, notably C.E. Fraser Clark's work on Hawthorne and Joel Meyerson's too on Emerson and Emily Dickinson, have built on, expanded, and improved the list that appeared in BAL. These volumes, which are each dedicated to a single author, cover the w their work in much greater depth than BAL could, especially in regard to foreign editions, reprints of, these, of the author's works, and their contributions to periodicals. The increased awareness of the importance of detailed t textual analysis that led to the formation of the Center for the Editions of American Authors has meant that certain works by some authors have received much closer bibliographical examination that was, than was possible by the staff of BAL. Many 20th century American writers that fall outside the limited scope of BAL, lived beyond 1930, must now be considered as important literary figures. And many of these have already been the subject of bibliographies of their own. The four volumes of first printings of American authors and the proposed Gale Bibliography of the Literature of America, both sponsored by Matthew J. Brookley, have indicated the direction that some future attempts at a comprehensive guide to our literature will take. There remains much work to be done, and it is an interesting time to be involved in American bibliography. And yet, BAL will surely not be forgotten or become outdated very soon. Those seven volumes, soon to be eight, bound in black cloth with red and gold spine labeling, may well appear idiosyncratic today, bound as they are by the ideas of the time and the men that conceived and produced them. Yet, they have managed to bring together so much information about our literature in a consistent and accurate way that they will be consulted for years to come. Perhaps the BAL is a contribution to the bibliography of American literature, but one which should inspire us all and continue to prove, to prove useful for future work. As for the Reverend Sidney Smith and his quip, there's no guarantee that a bibliography can assure that a nation's books will be read and studied, but I feel sure that without such guides, the likelihood is less and the work is much more difficult. If the Reverend Smith, wherever he is today, should wish to reconsider his opinion of the accomplishments of American literary authors, I, for one, know where he can look for help. Thank you.